If I, if I put it on LinkedIn, it, in my head it's public. Um, I'm trying to think, you know, there's, I don't know how far back you want to go. Uh, well, okay. not to conception, but we've got to start there. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I'm saying, yeah, no. Like, uh, <laughs> okay, this episode is brought to you by OfficeIn, a South African recruitment startup for developers. OfficeIn inverts the normal recruitment process. Instead of applying for jobs, 350 tech companies in Cape Town, Johannesburg, and Pretoria send developers interview requests with upfront salary info. For developers, it's completely free to sign up and use. In fact, you get 5,000 Rand if you take a job through them. Visit OfferZen.com to sign up. That's O-F-F-E-R-Z-E-N.com. Welcome to episode 61 of the ZA DevChat podcast. Tonight on the panel, I'm joined by Kevin. Howdy, howdy. And Len. Good evening. And our guest tonight is Tim Hark. Hello, Tim. Hi, everyone. Tim, for those who don't know you yet, uh, why don't you take a minute to introduce us to yourself? And uh, from there, maybe let's uh, summer flow into how you got started with uh, technology. Uh, all right. I'm uh, at the moment. I'm a independent contractor working sort of in the web sphere. So you know, PHP uh, website, quite a bit in Docker. So I'm also a Docker captain for my sins. Um, how I landed up here is it's, it's that usual circuitous route that most tech people seem to take. Uh, you know, started off with uh, electronic engineering and had a bursary from Telcom and went there. And being Telcom, they had nothing for me to do for a whole bunch of time, so I started playing with uh, web programming, and it just progressed from there. Um, then at some point through that, joined a startup doing uh, basically network and management and shaping sort of big brother stuff, I want to say that, but also optimizing network links for larger corporates. Um, and I did that for a whole bunch of years. Uh, I'm curious what uh, attracted you to electrical engineering to begin with. It's really weird. Uh, I did programming in, in high school, um, and we had a very bad teacher who put me off programming and made me think, no, I don't want to do this. So, like, the next most interesting thing was electronic engineering. Halfway through that, I realized no programming was the right thing to do, and the teacher actually didn't know what they are doing, um, and that's why it was so bad. Oh, no. Um, yeah, sadly, I'm sure a lot of people had the same with teachers in high school. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's one of those things where basically they focus on the whole history of computers, not programming. Um, and it just gave me a very bad view of what it actually is. Um, but subsequently, being electronic engineering, you, you tend to start doing a bit more programming. Uh, oddly enough, my final year project was, a, a, once again, sort of a in-office central. You know, like quite a while we had this thing. We had a storage server and a bit of networking and DHCP and all that, um, all done with HP in those days. So that was... 2000. Uh, got introduced to it by some of the guys at uh, CSR, but this is like, they introduced it with no database. You, you had their own like storage mechanism that looked a bit like XML slash CSV. Um, thinking back to that like, cringe right corporate now, um, but you know, we all start somewhere. Um, as I said, uh, then worked for the company called Lucidview. Uh, while I was there, I got involved with the PTA Web, which is the Pretoria Wireless User Group. Um, and for them, because I was in sort of the network shaping 
uh, bandwidth management stuff, I basically created a, the, uh, we wrote the network, the shaping for all the high sites, uh, where they would actually basically self-tune themselves as the, the link quality went up and down. Um, your main thing is with those things is you'd never want to actually be transmitting at full speed. You do that, you get high packet loss. And as soon as you get retransmissions on wireless, it dies. Um, so basically as the links quality would improve or did, uh, improve or get worse, uh, it would basically then change its shaping to suit that and clamp it just below the maximum one. And from all the testing, you actually get significantly far more throughput and latency. We, we could get below 50 milliseconds from uh, basically Victoria North all the way up to Madrid. Wow. Maybe just the, for the listeners who who's not familiar with tra uh, traffic shaping, who only knows that as something that the ISPs do to help uh, cope with oversaturated networks, like maybe just explain a bit what that is and, and how it works. Okay. Uh, it's, it's quite common. Uh, shaping, it's a very bad rap, but it's actually an incredibly important thing in networking. Uh, and it's basically when your link congests, what must happen? So if you think about it, any big corporate or line, let's say you've got an office line, we've all experienced it, that everybody suddenly jumps in the morning and suddenly nothing works. Where shaping comes in, it's, it's basically specifying some rules to say, I want to make sure my uh, news websites and my banking websites at that point when the, the link saturates, I want those to keep on working and some person's torrenting, I want to make sure that that gets clamped during those times. Now, in that, you get quite a variance of how people do it. So, so you get the old way of doing it, which is, okay, well, I'm going to specify what percentage of my bandwidth will go to different protocols. So mail will get 30% and browsing will get 50% and et cetera. But that's actually, if, if you guys are still doing it, stop, go, go look, get some of the newer stuff. Um, the best one out there at the moment, there's, there's a slightly new one, but hierarchical token bucket filtering. And basically, it then allows sharing. So let's say the mail isn't using all the bandwidth. You can say that uh, browsing can now burst up to consume it. Um, I don't know if I've explained that well, if you guys have questions about that. Well, I know that very well from a, from a past life, and especially those hierarchical token buckets. And uh, having spent countless hours in IRC and on the Linux advanced routing and traffic control mailing list to learn all this crazy nonsense. Yeah. It's actually quite, it's a, but, sorry. No, I was just going to say, like, I, I agree with you how important it is. I think people um, generally misunderstand when they have a, um, when their lines are not shaped. If, if they get like an unshaped ADSL uh, package, um, they like, I mean, it's, it's fantastic if you want to play a game or something, but then while you're busy playing your game and you've got your low latency and, it, you know, no traffic's prioritized, your sister's in the next room opening a pop video on YouTube and your game just goes to hell instantly. <laughs> uh, because the line, like, it's just, everything's competing so i agree with you that gets a, a bad rep but it is so needed that's also why we can ssh into our servers even while the line's getting hammered by somebody else because generally these networks are run by people that value ssh so it would have a huge priority on the network ne never mind your sister in the room next door um you know you you due, due to the cost constraints like you're going to be sharing and with with a whole bunch of people um, so once you hit the ISP, you know, they can't provide everybody 8 megs, their own personalized 8 megs. It's just not cost effective. So you can have a whole bunch of other people doing that. And you want to make sure that you're all getting the, the, the same fair amounts of bandwidth. So shaping doesn't just make sure that, you know, that browsing keeps on working or your game keeps on working. Um, on the next level, if you've got two people playing game, it will also make sure that 50% goes to the one person and 50% goes to 
opposed to the other. Um, you know, you don't want some guy starting a thousand torrents, which is like a thousand connections, and each of his things all getting one thousandth of a percent, and you're single game in that. You know, it, that's where shaping actually kicks in. It, it tries to fairly allocate bandwidth. Well, that depends on the how it's been set up in the first place. Uh, I remember I was on an internet connection once where the guy who had set up the shaping had done some weird things and everything was given real-time priority so okay. we, we would start up a voice uh, a skype call and it'd be and then you would open a web page and suddenly the skype call would start dropping because http was given the same priority and we were just dropping packets uh, uh, uh given real time any late packets were just being dropped and not retransmitted uh and yeah that was that was hell <laughs> in their defense though like skype is actually particularly evil uh, to try shape it. Um, it. It will randomly try almost everything. It's, it's become a much better system. In the old days, it would start at 80, go to 443, start mm -hmm. randomly going on ports. So like, I know we, we spent a lot, a lot of effort to actually work out how to eventually shape Skype. So like to give Skype, you know, you could do VoIP quite easily because you've got the right ports and stuff. Skype itself, you, you, would, you would give it priority and next thing you'll just suddenly pick some random port and then get clamped. Yeah, the, the example that I had though, okay, I was just using Skype as one example, but basically any everything was given equal priority and as soon as you you tried to share it uh you tried to open a web page or something like that everyone else in the network did. yeah to me also i think part of the problem there um i've seen the biggest problem most people do with shaping is they go i've got 10 megs let me shape it 10 megs and, and weird things mm -hmm. like that then start happening like shaping if you want to do proper shaping you actually need to aim at about 95 percent of your line yeah like the bigger line is the higher you can get to the 100 percent because the whole thing is if you do it 100 percent of the line you actually not shaping because upstream is going to decide what randomly gets dropped and things randomly get dropped and the good protocols back away and the bad protocols don't so like that's what ISPs hate BitTorrent. It, it doesn't, it just hammers as fast as it can. Um, but if you can get that 95% correct, it's, it's amazing. And we, we did a lot of tests of this. We found if you shape at 95%, you actually can push more data through your line than without shaping or shaping at 100%. Yeah, because your upstream is not clamping. Yeah. Yeah, and you, you, can, you can control your data flow a lot when you've got control, but not leaving it up to whatever has been configured by someone else upstream. Yeah, um, and like quite often you can actually see this with ISPs nowadays. It's, it sounds funny if you suddenly like start opening a web page and it comes down pretty quick, but there's these odd lags. I can't explain it. I can I can feel it when you're using it. Get this lagginess when you click on the web. Like nothing, nothing, and suddenly it bursts. Uh, it tends to mean that they've tried to shape it 100 percent and have big buffs. Oh, well, well, I was going to say, or they could purposely have shaped it that way, kind of like what iBurst did back in the day. Uh, explain. They, I, I used to do this at a residential complex where we also had like four, five, 12K ADSL lines. I think it was the top of the range then. And we divided that two megs up between 200 units. Okay. Um, yeah, it was a bit crazy, but I mean, not everybody was on remotely at the same time. We maybe had like 10, 15 people at the same time. But using the uh, the token buckets, you could create these like little fake bursts. So you can say whenever somebody opens a new connection, the first one meg goes through quickly and then you start bringing the speed down. So for most normal browsing, it's fine. You know, okay, well, not these days with, you know, several megs of ads coming with, but for most websites, the website would almost load instantly. But if you buffer a video on YouTube, like the first five seconds would come in quickly and then you'll sit and wait because your speed went from 512, which was one of the incoming lines, down to like 128 or 64K over time. Yeah, no, you can do quite a bit of things with that. Um, and But it's quite amazing. See, but it sounds funny. You can you can feel guys who play with the right. Sunny 
many uh, weird things that just the internet feels faster. Yes, yeah, yeah. And uh, well, let's uh, like <clears throat> unstuck ourselves from that that shaking. Cool. <laughs> uh, the 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 Pretoria work um, that sounded interesting. I mean, that, if I remember right, they there was this mission to join the Johannesburg Wireless Network and the Pretoria Network some years ago. Did they ever get uh, yeah, that right? They did. Only uh, look, I, I must say I haven't been involved that much. We, we moved, and I haven't had time to put my uh, dishes and stuff back up. Um, though they had a couple links where they connected. The big problem is, you know, you need enough to get the proper throughput. So, like, it sounds funny. Internal to the PTA, well, you could get very high speeds. And as soon as you cross over into, like, trying to cross that boundary, those links were very saturated. Um, so they, they, they had links, just it, they weren't the greatest. Um, but I must be honest, I, I haven't played with that that much. I know when I joined, they were migrating from uh, or migrating from two uh, DGP and, and changing all that. And part of it was to integrate better with the JA work. And there's a whole IP range change and stuff. Um, it was quite interesting. Okay. And I'm just like, well, what did people actually use that network for? Because I remember when I looked at it, it was one of the things that it's, it's technically illegal to provide internet to it because you need all the licenses and stuff. So it was just like a huge land among friends and strangers. Yes, so, so basically, you could get anything that didn't require direct internet. So there were guys who had gaming servers that they played on it. Uh, I know some guys, which, you know, it's a great area, ran VPNs between offices and home. Um, you know, there was lots of legal file sharing, let's call it that, or, or, or um, things. The big thing at this time is when it became very popular is you, you didn't get the high-speed ADSL. So right now, you know, you can get a 20 meg or 40 meg ADSL, so the, the need for the work is a lot less. But in, in the heyday, you know, the highest you could get was a 4 meg line and 512k up. But on the web, you know, I had 25 megabits per second bi-directional. So it was quite amazing what you could then do, especially if you were a network or internet professional, it gave you this great play area in networking. So like, you know, I played quite a bit with the shaping and, you know, this, you know, this is a, a network that spanned the whole of Pretoria, literally from Pretoria North all the way up to Midrand. And it was quite a good testing ground to play with shaping and see how it works across multi-links and multi, you know, network things and, and with EGP, how it all meshed together. And at some point I was also playing with IPv6 to test how that worked. Um, and it was quite a good player for that. And then guys, you know, it was a cheap way to get the larger things that people needed to download off the internet cheaply. So, that, you know, if you, let's say an ISO you need to download off Ubuntu, you could get that down very cheaply. So you didn't have to spend that much money on your ASL line. Remember, like, the cost thing we have now is nowhere near what it used to be. It used to be far more expensive. And mm. that's the niche that it solved. I think nowadays it's, it's dying a bit more because the ISPs and we've managed to get much faster links at a much better price. So that need that you had at that point has decreased. Yeah, no, definitely. And I'm, I don't know, I'm, I'm speculating, but I'm guessing with all this fiber to the curb, people in the same suburbs at least can also have like lightning fast connections to each other yeah. these days. Like I keep on getting surprised. I keep on waiting for one of the fiber guys to actually allow uh, direct person-to-person -person connections. Uh, because I think that will also differentiate and actually allow... My big complaint to worry in this, this, this country is we are major consumers of things. We don't produce much. Uh, and our main problem is like to get a YouTube video up the internet is still not very viable thing. Um, and running your local server that your community can then just connect in your office uh, was never really viable over like ADSL with you know, our, our asymmetric lines. And with the fiber and stuff that's becoming more prevalent, and I think we'll see more of it, 
But it'll be interesting to have it that, you know, internal to your network, you can do gigabit. And once you go internet, you know, then you get your slower speeds. Uh, I always thought that would foster more interesting development locally. So, look, until we get most of the people in the country on, on the internet, uh, like I still think we're going to be quite behind. No, no, that does make a lot of sense. I want to take a moment to tell you about OfferZen. OfferZen connects you with more than 350 South African companies that are hiring developers. Instead of dealing with recruiters or applying to dozens of jobs individually, on OfferZen, companies apply to you. To get started, just sign up on OfferZen.com and build a profile. Once you're ready, your profile is made visible to the companies hiring on OfferZen. Companies interested in you will send you an interview request with details about the job, including upfront salary info. So if you're looking for work or want to hire developers, check them out at OfferZen.com. That's O-F-F-E-R-Z-E-N.com. And uh, you guys hosted a podcast. I guess around the same time you were also busy with all the wireless networking uh, yeah. and stuff. Yeah, so it started with a whole bunch of guys from the PTA work. Uh, we started with one podcast called Let's Talk Geek. We did that for about three years and eventually expanded to a, a sports one, an Afrikaans one, a, it's called a holistic one called Let's Talk Possibilities. Um, I think they're actually still going. Um, we did it for quite a while. It was quite a bit of fun. Um, sort of different to this one was it was uh, we did a live recording with video streaming. Look, we then subsequently produced a video and audio podcast from that. But the guys could also join us live and actually watch us as we were recording it, uh, which was fun and interesting. Technically, I wouldn't recommend it to everyone because it uh, increases your complexity level quite a bit. And this is still with the fastest line, which is 512K app. Um, so we had to do a whole bunch of very interesting things to get streaming working. Um, well, like, luckily, I had experience bending links to your will. Yep. Yep, no, it, it was interesting. And it was fun, it was lots of fun. Eventually we stopped just because it, it sort of solved all the technical problems and it started becoming a bit of work and stuff. But it's something I recommend to anyone is actually to go do a podcast or join a podcast for a while. There's a lot of things you learn and, and you know, it's, it's a good experience. I'm sure you guys are aware of this. Yeah, yes. <laughs> I was just going to say, this is great advice from Tim Ferriss over and over again, where he says if, if somebody feels like doing a podcast, they have to do at least six episodes to know whether they like it or cut out for it, get over some of the challenges and, and all that jazz. Yeah, no, it, it, you've got to do it for a while. Like one of the big things is initially when you still always find you are so worried about talking what you're saying, you actually make it worse. And after a while, you, you sort of forget that you're being recorded and what's going on. I must say, if, if you want to improve your public speaking, or, or the nervousness you have about public speaking. Uh, it was one of the reasons why I did it. And um, I must say it had a huge impact uh, with that. Yeah, I never thought about it like that. But yeah, I guess you, you're perfectly right. <laughs> and um, so speaking of public speaking, uh, you also, you organize or co-organize the, the Joburg PHP meetup, is yeah. that right? Um, um, one of the th uh, actually five organizers now. We we expanded. We've got some more more people in. Uh, I'm always one of those people who believe you know if you can get more people involved in the actual organization and share the load, you actually a land up with a better thing because you get more views. But also, if you have only one or two people, like one person always organizing, they eventually get tired and you know they can burn out a bit. Um, so by being able to spread the load, um, a lot of people like worry about that because you know these people maybe won't do it properly or the rest of it, but actually, in fact, most people surprise you and they step up. Um, not sure what you want to know about that. It's been going for a couple of years now. I, I wasn't one of the, I was there at the first one, but I know uh, my, two of my other colleagues, Grant and Zander, were the actual original organizers. Um, and I, I think I, I kept on 
doing stuff. So eventually they just pulled me in and said, well, you're doing it anyway. You can join us. Oh, yes, the badge that yeah. you can now put on. <laughs> so, yeah, I guess I don't want to talk about it too much. I'd love to have a separate show again about uh, PHP um, and the communities and stuff. I mean, we had it in on some time ago on the show. It was definitely like neglected. And I guess I've played a big part over time in helping like fuel the fire against PHP when I'm trying to turn my ways and, uh, you know, around and look and, and see what the people are doing and, you know, do all the great stuff. Um, but um, I'm just curious, like the, the size of the meetup and how healthy it is and, and this thing's still flying, like it's a blossom. <laughs> Uh, it is. Uh, we 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 made the well, not the great mistake. Um, it's it's doing quite well. We're growing quite nicely now. So I'd say we at about between twenty to forty five people at a meter, but depending on what else is happening. Um, we actually were hitting far higher numbers, and we moved locations. And that from all the other guys that are here, that that always has a huge impact on your numbers for a while. So we're now starting to get out of that and keep on growing it. Um, and I know the one where I think we hit 80 people at the venue, which is why we moved to a larger a venue, but uh, but it's going well. Um, like PHP, what people think of PHP isn't what it is anymore. It's, it's, it's quite a bit different and it's matured quite a bit. Um, I think PHP's very bad rap is it's so easy to get started with it. So you have so many people who, who don't know what they're doing working in it, so you land up with some really crazy stuff out there. But in my head, that's actually a, a, a bonus, not actually a negative. Yeah, and I must say, it's probably got the simplest deployment story of anything. Uh, I think. Such a, yeah, such I a think pleasure. I think Node is maybe challenging at there at the moment. Um, but I always think that's good. So you can see Ruby, Node, and PHP, and all these guys are actually feeding off each other and are all improving together at the same time. So Node and Ruby lit a huge fire underneath the PHP the, you know, the core developers, which suddenly PHP suddenly started improving at quite a rapid rate. And, you know, like with 7, there's they scary p speed improvements that they've improved because of Node and, and Ruby. Nice. Yeah, I haven't uh, seen PHP in quite some time. I did a little bit of uh, one file with some RabbitMQ stuff to help somebody play and, and prototype an idea out. And that was mm, almost a year ago, I think, by now. Um, and it was a lot of fun, and I was yeah, I quite quite surprised how how much fun it was again to pick up. Yeah, look, it's still one of the languages that powers most of the internet for for good or bad. But I think that's mainly due to WordPress, because WordPress seems to power most of the internet. Um, which I've looked at the code base. Uh, I'm always surprised sometimes when you see like code bases that that have been around for quite a while, because you get so used to doing things in the new way, then you look at the old way and you go. And well, we're this is how we have to do it. Yeah, but it's a great place to reflect and look back and just go like we we came forward. No matter where we were, we we yeah, moved forward. It gives you a good feeling as well. Um, but look, I don't think no language is perfect. No no language is actually as evil as the other people make it. And at some point, you need to pick the ones that you pick. Uh, PHP was you know as I said when I started that was about the only one. I played a bit with ASP when I was at Telcom um, due to them suddenly wanting to do everything with ASP. And we got up to a point where this is very old ASP, so not the modern one, but we needed certain libraries that PHP had that to do like PDF exports. And ASP just couldn't do it. So then we flicked back to PHP. Um, but you know, no, it's, it's quite interesting. It's, it's, there's quite a lot of development in there. It's, it's, it's moving at quite a rapid pace nowadays. Thanks. Uh, that's interesting to, to kind of hear the journey. And I mean, it kind of helps paint the picture a bit. I mean, obviously through 
a lot of the stuff you've always kind of like enjoyed infrastructure or had your hand on the underlying infrastructure. Now, I wonder if that's part of what made uh, you gravitate towards Docker and become a, a Docker captain. Yeah, so for my sense, especially with the, let's start with the Lucid View, view side of it. Um, I, I've, it was a startup when I was like uh, employee number one there. Uh, so when you're that, you, you, you have to do all the pieces. So, you know, and these are were devices that were deployed at clients' premises. So you start having to worry about deployments and patch systems and rollbacks and all the rest of it. And I know I was there, I had a friend who had to go look at Amazon. And he happened to mention this Docker thing that everyone's talking about. So I started looking at it, and the more I looked at it, just the problems it solves and the simplicity of it, it, it it's a really... If you've ever had to deploy systems remotely and, and do updates and rolling updates and rollbacks, Docker just solves so many problems. Um, and I think part of the reason why a lot of people don't always get Dockers is, is they haven't worked enough with servers. So like I see, a lot of programmers seem to be very scared of servers. Um, so they, they tend to try to stay away from it. Um, but, and if you have done that, like it, it becomes very hard to explain always the advantages Docker gives you. Yeah, definitely. And and if I just have to uh, point fingers at my beloved Ruby, like deploying a Rails app is non-trivial. I mean, mm-hmm. <laughs> we get used to it. We've been doing it for years. Me and Kevin, so we kind of like, you know, you, you go blindly through the motions. But if you actually step back and you compare it to what it takes to deploy a PHP app or like even simpler, a jar file. I mean, it's one of the simplest things in the world to, to get going. But for Node and Ruby, and I'm sure there's other languages that, I don't know, maybe Python, the same, that actually need a compiler on a production box and, and all this jazz, then something like Docker is like an absolute uh, blessing. T- t- but, uh, yeah, I agree with you. Like somebody, uh, Totally. Um, it's even more more than what people don't realize. Like if you ever worked for the server, and guys who work for the server, like your big problem is you now suddenly run the, the server update. So, you know, your app get disk upgrade or, or your yum upgrade. Um, and then suddenly some library breaks in relation to PHP or like I had one where the kernel broke something. Now quickly trying to roll back that, that update is very, very hard. Um, you know, everyone thinks just, you know, like a program is, oh, I've just got my PHP and I do a Git, uh, I, I go back with Git. But down to actually the libraries that you're using underneath it, you know, the MySQL library or the Postgres or, you know, or the, you're talking, you know, any of those things. Um, that's where Docker starts to really shine. Um, it, where it's actually the, the big problem, like this is a lot of people, a lot of people get stuck on the layers and all the rest. The big problem that Docker solves is it gives you a reproducibility. So I can give you a Docker image and it will run exactly on your PC as it runs on mine. Um, if you follow the correct rules. Um, and, and like once you start understanding that, that, that is where Docker, that's the big reason why people love Docker so much. Um, it's they took a whole bunch of tools and they put this ecosystem around it. So it gives you basically that I can pull an image with all my libraries in it. You know, you can get the one good guy in your team to build it and all your developers now pull it down. And on their dev machines, they can all have the same version of PHP, all the libraries set up. I don't know if you guys ever worked in a team where, where um, you haven't had that and, you know, suddenly half the guy's PC is an update to the Mac and PHP or Ruby or something breaks on everyone's PCs. Yep. Yeah. Every OS X update uh, ever. Uh, <laughs> uh, no, you're the one who's had bad luck on OS X updates. But anyway. Well, <laughs> the problem is... But, but if, if I can just jump in there, the thing that I, I get to with that is it's... A, 
when it gets to server deploys, though, is you get that reproducibility and the, that you can scale that up and down very quickly, that you can, you have a, a snapshot and whether you're deploying one or 10, you know that you're, it, 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 you basically can just have a slide. Uh, yeah, that's true. Look, one thing I want to say with it that is more complicated than most people, like it, it makes it easier. Okay, so if you've had to do cluster deployments, Docker makes your life so much better. Uh, if you've never done cluster deployments and distributed applications, distributed applications are hard. Um, nothing really makes them easy because you suddenly start, now start worrying about weird stuff. So let's say, okay, you've now got your database that's replicated. How do you get all those things to talk together? Um, and for, like nothing really solves that. Um, and I, I keep on having people um, think that, oh, wait, Docker, I'm just going to do it. I'm going to scale up and say 10 databases and say they're all going to talk to each other and work together. Um, and that's why I, I, I'd rather, you know, people say it's, it's that reproducibility. But if you can make an image that can speak, that two can speak, then you can have one that three can speak and four can speak because they will all work the same. Now, one of the other nice things about containers is once you've got your artifacts running in them and you start zooming out a bit, then you start seeing this pattern that most of the containers run in mostly the same way most of the time. And from that, you suddenly get this added benefit of the way you would do your process monitoring and provisioning and metrics and runtime and all this kind of stuff starts start looking very similar, which traditionally might have been a pain. And I think that's also the great boon for projects like Kubernetes and the CoreOS systems and Mesosphere and who knows what else all these other systems are because it's only ever one way to run a container, uh, many ways to configure them, but one way to run them and keep them alive. And that usually simplifies yeah. things as it, well. It gives you, yeah, uh, that is definitely one of the things. Also that you can run an app that was based for Ubuntu on Red Hat now. So like you can produce this. I always think of it as like it's the next evolution of an RPM or dev file. It, it's, it's, you can now package a thing that will run on any other Linux out there if they're running Docker. Mm. I might get like pitchfork for this, but it's kind of like a jar, except it's yeah, well, way more. That, you can have this. You can give the Java, you know, the JDK or, or JRE with it, locked down to a specific version. So uh, I don't know if you ever had to distribute apps to out to users or something like that. Like trying to tell someone, oh, you know, PHP. Oh, wait, you're running this version of PHP. No, you need to upgrade to this other version of PHP. So being a contractor, you know, I, I work with clients and stuff now, and I had one that's was running Docker, and I, I could just give them my image. Uh, I had the Docker files, I had, I had the images that I built on my service with my own registry, and I don't know if you ever had where you've done a handover to a client and you have the server app running and everything live from nothing in half an hour. Yeah, I know. That's, that's quite nice. Generally, you give them a server that's already running that you spend months and tweaking and then run away. Like everything, so from coming in, this is spinning up a database with Elasticsearch and it had a PHP front end running a specific version um, and it had some JavaScript stuff in the background. Um, and the main time that took us was just more sitting, talking and getting onto the server and starting to do it. So if it was just me and the guy and we were ready, we, we could have have, I could have given them all the code and have everything running on their, on their servers within about 10 minutes. Yeah, that's great. And uh, while we're on that, uh, kind of the, the hypey side of Docker, I mean, all of us kind of like it. I don't use it in production now. Um, I used to. Uh, Kevin does. I, I know you do. <laughs> but uh, what's your what's your 
viewers like is docker still living up to the hype or is it just like solidly ticking on or are people like getting out of like are they in the trough of disillusionment or coming out of it uh, like no, what's kind of the view there accelerating um every now and again docker feels to me like the node ecosystem feels um you know i i literally can't keep up with all the things going on i do think it's going to stabilize at some point so they they're starting to move in a very specific direction so the big thing is solved so the deployment of apps initially um but then there was still networking and storage that need to be solved so like kubernetes solves some of the things so the networking and how do you wire your your apps together um and the new docker swarm stuff which is pretty cool from docker itself um uh, you know you can set up a swarm so that's like i don't think you guys ever try to cl- do clustering of servers um it's you know it, it can be quite complicated it takes quite a while but with swarm and i've i've done a test with this kind of from spinning up like no servers with terraform i can spin up five servers with dns with docker with a distributed database running and a front end in about 10 minutes um and like on on azure it's a bit longer mm-hmm. but more because it takes the servers more complicated it's literally what the slow thing there is how long does it take to spin up the servers what was amazing i saw kelsey hightower did a demo uh, at dotgo a while ago uh, where he fired up three clusters across uh, us europe and asia deployed an app across all three of them and um load balanced across all three in about one minute yeah no it's amazing what you can do look the, the one thing i will say you know it takes a bit of setup you you need to know what you're doing but compared to setting up clustering and load balance like that before it 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 makes it just so stupidly simple so like the new stuff that communication between the the docker nodes is all encrypted they they've done that for you out of the box it's doing ssl key rotation every 60 minutes um between your nodes and their communication you can even get it so with docker swarm you can get it to also do effectively like a vpn networking across them which is encrypted um and it it's you just basically say create network and i want it encrypted and it it does all the work for you so i know like speaking to the guys in docker they trying to make it that doing this distributed architecture servers which is a very complicated hard thing they trying to just make that very very simple so i know which i appreciate they are working on you know i don't know but the last piece of the puzzle in this is now just storage um so it's distributed storage that is simple to deploy like as soon as that's there um that's a one piece that's missing that they've blocked five million different solutions for it but i'm waiting for somebody to actually wire that all together i think doc is working on something related to that i'm curious about that um i mean the things have obviously changed a lot and and people are experimenting with things but i've just had the whole or held the personal belief and opinion that if you need to persist any data you simply move that service outside of docker like treat docker like a a volatile place where things can get nuked at any moment and they respawn somewhere else and you don't need to sweat and then offload your important databases to like stable infrastructure with people that skilled at looking after your data and making sure it never gets lost and then you keep docker as the wild west where people are deploying thousands of times a day and services are just auto scaling and falling over and rollbacking and rolling forward and and that how do you see that um, persistent story I, from I've your side um so 
when I was working at AfriHost, the, 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 like always saying, uh, my advice with people start with Docker is do not put your database in it. <laughs> because especially when people are starting to learn, they end up nuking their databases and nuking the files quite often. Um, as time goes by, you, you do learn what to do and what not to do. So what I would still do is, is I would persist the files and stuff like that, but I would have the, the database libraries and stuff inside Docker, which once again gives me the easy um, deployment. So now I need to upgrade. Now I can test it quite easily on my testing service um, and then deploy, and I know it's safe. So like I know I've run Mongo uh, in AfriHost is running through Docker. So I could spin up a new Mongo server from scratch within like 10 minutes there. And because Mongo is replicated, it's one of the safe databases to use. So I know for the demo I've been doing is I've been using RethinkDB, which is distributed database. Um, and then when you get it up and replicate it, and those are better fit for Docker until you get persistence. Um, but I, I don't have a problem with persisting stuff or running stuff in Docker. You just need to know what you um, because you can shoot yourself in the foot. If you're using other cloud providers, though, they do this for you. So that's actually solved if you're using Google or AWS or even Azure to an extent, that persistent one, you, because they've all got like a replicated storage you put it in. So when your MySQL migrates to another node, it can still speak to the same storage. Yeah, we've got one of our data stores running in production in Docker and just using the Google persistent disks to, to configure that. And wherever, whatever box that happens to fire upon, the disk just gets attached based on the config in Kubernetes. Yeah. So, if you, as you say, if you're with a cloud provider, it's a it's a relatively solved problem. But I still think there's still a lot to do from the Docker side for that. I mean, we've got Docker volumes, but that, that that's not really solving the yeah. problem. Yeah. Well, look, if you're willing to spin up and set up Ceph or GlusterFS or any of these other guys. Uh, there are plugins to the volumes that will then do their persistence like um, the Kubernetes with Google Cloud does and AWS does. So there are things they just, uh, uh, I don't know if you've ever had, tried to set up any of these CFs or clusters. They're, they're horribly complicated. Most just can't do it. Um, you know, you've got to know what you're doing. And I'm waiting for somebody yep. to solve that in a simple way. I, I, the group, you know, you, the, the, I know these guys are working on it. So I know somebody at some point is going to solve it. Um, but like I you know with Kubernetes and Google, it's, it, they want you to use their cloud. Uh, and the big reason why I haven't been able to use this is the client that I'm using with lots of storage is they need to have it that they can move providers easily. And that's the one problem if you are using Google Cloud and AWS. So then something migrate that out to the other storage is hard. So I want something that I can spin up on bare metal or move to a cloud or shift it around. And, and that's the the piece that like I know I haven't even answered that one yet. Yeah, it's a bit messy. You can oh I've done a demo with Kubernetes where you almost you can choose whether you back it back in it with safe or glass, but you can also just use the NFS share off a server and then like Kevin said, as the pod moves around throughout the Kubernetes uh, system that the the is it the kubelet, Kevin, that runs on every server. Well We'll unmount the NFS mount and remount it somewhere else and then use the data volumes to get it back into the container and it just moves. Yeah, I'm not but, sure. Yeah, then you, you need to I'm manage not sure storage. What mechanism is behind it. But all I know is in, I've got a config that says I want the disk with this name to be attached into this location on my file system. And Look, depending on who you're using, uh, there's, there's sort of two models they use. So if you're using 
I think if you're using Google as your cloud backend storage, they sort of mount it when you start your image. But the if you're just using the volume plugins, pretty much every single node has access to that storage thing. It doesn't mount it, and it's, it's always mounted on all of them. They just then point at the, the right location on that shared storage. So you can think of it like a shared file share, and um, when it moves, it points to that directory, the same directory that the previous one did. Yeah, oh. I, I can see Google, yeah. I can see exactly which VM actually has a specific disk attached to it. Yeah, yeah so I, I know they, they do a lot more fancy stuff, so I'm, I'm talking more yeah. if you're just using the Docker volume plugins. Yeah. Okay. No, no, yeah. Google, um, due to their Borg experience and all their stuff, they, they've done some very, very fancy stuff there that, that is really better, but like to replicate that as a non-Google company, I think is quite hard. Mm. So what's our consensus? Do you keep some of your data inside containers and some of the data out depending on the workload. I think it depends what you're doing. How big is your database? Are you doing, if you're doing heavy data processing, I always believe straight metal is your answer. Um, you know, because that's going to be your fastest. You know, remove the layers, remove everything, just put it on metal, but you know, this, you have dedicated DBAs managing this. If you've got a, it's called a hundred gig database, in uh, Docker is fine if you know what you're doing. I just I'm more worried that guys start there immediately, and then they accidentally wipe their database, which I, I have had a friend there before. Okay, yeah, I concur. So until you don't, un, yeah, get used to using infrastructure that can be destroyed the whole time at any time, and then when when you've got a handle on that, then slowly bring in your data. Yeah. Look, the make sure you thing can handle Docker it. Is you must always make it that you can you can delete your running containers. So that's even with the if you're running a DB in there. So you must always stuff that must be stored permanently okay. must be stored externally. But your things that control controls the binaries or the PHP or your web service or stuff, like I'm a firm believer, like you, you never stop start them. You always delete old one, restart new one. Because if you follow that pattern, then you follow the correct patterns of how to use these things. You know, what's it? Uh, you want them to be cattle, not pets. Uh, and suddenly, like, a whole bunch of things help. So, like, yes. as I said, these guys that I told you about, we, I need to migrate them. So they do video streaming that I've got a backend that's built for them. Um, and I can spin up a new server, full-on streaming and everything, once again, also in about 10 or 20 minutes. The only thing that now takes me a while is to migrate the actual video files. So you're talking about terabytes of files. Um, and that's where I want the distribution storage answer because then I can just share it. Um, and I haven't had time to actually sit down and get a good answer for that yet. I'm almost tempted to just use Mongo, uh, just because it's very simple. Like Mongo MS, I don't know if you guys played with uh, It's surprisingly easy to work and it works really well, but I, I still feel a bit dirty storing files in the database. Yeah, I know. I, yeah, I've never had a chance to play with that uh, interface. It works surprisingly well. So all the invoicing, if you, if you get any the invoicing from AfroHost, all of that is coming out of Mongo file system. Hmm. That's interesting. And uh, so I want to pull it just back up a little. I mean, like, thanks. I was interested in exploring the edges and the nuances of storage um, and some of the other lower level stuff. Um, but I think it's there's also a lot people can go read up and explore um, on their own. But I'm, I'm curious, have you had a look at any of the competing technologies uh, that's in the container space? Like well, Rocket people, or I don't Rockets? know what else I haven't looked at it a bit. Um, my big thing is, the, the reasoning behind Rocket to me feels dis a bit disingenuous. So the guys who are running Rocket are more, they're effectively doing so that competes against Docker. So part of the reason for creating Rocket is to try to wrest some of the control from the Docker guys 
So, you know, it's sort of backed by Google and all the rest of it. So, I, I, you know, I'm always very careful to be aware of that when I'm looking at it. Um, the thing is that there's so much focus on Docker that that's the one that's actually winning. Um, and that's where all the new stuff is going. And, and uh, my one dislike for Rocket was, um, when I did look at it a bit, was that you could do multiple builds in one Docker file. And one of the things I like about Docker is the simplicity of the Docker file. That, you know, you have one thing that does one thing well. Uh, now you're starting to add complexity into that, which actually, I think, diminishes what it does. But, okay. I don't uh, yeah, know you could do so, that. Like, I, I run one of the... Uh, I don't know if you guys know about Plex.tv or Plex servers for video streaming. Um, it's basically... Yeah. So I run the... Yep one of the Docker images for that. And between the, there's the normal Plex, and if you've got a paid version, you get Plex Pass. So the one guy was recommending that we do that because you could, from the rocket, build both at the same time. Um, and at the time, I looked at it, but the added complexity in that rocket file, to me, actually scared me away from it. Secondly, um, now anybody who knows Docker looks at that is, is going to shy away from it. Like Docker, Rocket is more like, almost like, adding extra features on top of Docker. So if you learn Docker, you're still safe. Um, and there's so much stuff in there. Look, I, I, I always believe competition is good, so I'm glad Rocket is there because it is pushing the Docker guys. Um, but I don't think it adds very much more. And I, I know the guys speaking in this forums and stuff, they say Rocket's nice, but because you don't have enough people using it, the stability isn't quite there. But I think with Google behind it, I think they're pushing quite hard. But I think they're doing that more because they, they want to try and get some of the control into Google. I think there's a bit of that in there. Okay. I was always just under the impression that they want to standardize a bit more of the moving parts to allow uh, the more free competition. I don't know that they were building out so many different features and variations on top of all, it. It all works with the same stuff. Um, the Docker guys do open it and all the rest of it. Uh, yes, not quite open. And I think at the stage it is, you know, it's a bit controversial, but you don't want to have this thing designed by committee. Um, you know, you, you want a couple of guys to have a thing just pushed forward until it has stabilized, and then you can start bringing more people in. Uh, always think of the node controversy where, where nodes sort of being designed by committee and then sort of lagging so far behind, and the guy showed off with uh, IOJS, and suddenly it sort of moved forward again. Um, so I think you have a bit of that as well. Um, you know, Rocket actually came from CoreOS, where Docker started to add certain features and stuff, and CoreOS then realized that they were competing, and they started to add this thing to try to reduce some of the competition. I mean, that's also some so long ago, but there's a... I guess people are curious about the origin of Rocket. There's a changelog episode. I'll link to it in the show notes, uh, where they chatted to them, where they came from. It's a bunch of interesting things, but... Yeah, like I said, I'm out of touch with it. It's just that same kind of thing. The competition's healthy and let people, like, you know, fight it out. And not in a bad way. Um, so I was just curious if there's something else. Because I know the, is it the Joyent um, SmartOS um, can run containers natively. It doesn't need Docker. So it's great. Like, and I don't know if that's a side effect of having that AppC format. Well, uh, and there's they originally had, like, you must speak to Len. He knows this area but yeah, better. Uh, but I know they originally had, like, their own containerization stuff. And then I think they added um, the ability to run sort of Linux things on top of that. But, like, BSD has had jails for years. So BSG jails mm -hmm. is, is pretty much the same thing. So the technology under Docker was the Linux guy saying that BSD jail thing is pretty cool, we want that, and starting to get that in. 
Yeah, no, that's pretty neat. I think I think I'm thinking of I think it's Cloud Foundry with their lattice that um, can also take a Docker container, but they instead of running it through the C groups and stuff natively, and I'm speaking under correction, it's been a while since I last checked it out, they unpack the container and then run the app like natively, pulling some magic. And it's it's quite neat to see that these things are possible when these things start looking the same at certain levels, especially yeah, that that's con- packaging well, up the, the, the container. The coolest one that I've seen, and I know they're still working on it, but it was actually Docker a year ago, was where they live migrated a running container to a different region. So... Like basically memory copy, like Whoa. didn't shut down. So I don't know if you've ever done play with KVM where you can do that. You can have two servers and you could actually say migrate this running server to this other server, um, you know, with shared networking and stuff like that. And I've done it, I've played with it one stage where you like, you start pinging this IP and at no point, and your SSH and at no point is the ping stop and at no point you lose access to SSH. But now it's actually running on a different server where it does a memory copy. So these guys are using that technology to actually migrate Docker containers uh, without, so let's say you need to now shut down the server, but you've got your critical database on this that you could maybe migrate it live to to the second server. Okay, I was just going to say why. Your container should be able to die at any point in time yeah. and I forget but about the persistence. Eventually, this is the way we're going to run everything. Um, I just see databases will be in this eventually. Um, they're just not quite like once persistence is solved, they, they, it is, it's a natural place to do it because it's, it's so much lighter and easier to run it than, you know, running your own metal. Look, and you get the guys who, who really are doing heavy database stuff and then metal's always better. But I must be honest, for 99% of the rest of us, most things could just run in us without any problem. Mm. So, um, let's, if we look forward a bit, um, I mean, Docker, and I don't mean it's in a bad way, more just an awareness way, like there's a lot of hype and, and we all get excited because there's a bunch of cool stuff around it and there's so much shiny and, and unicorns. But um, <laughs> what, what's your feel on it uh, for the future? You just said, like, you think eventually we're going to be, yeah, so, um, look, we'll be running whole, this way. You know, the way we use virtual servers now, that will be replaced with Docker eventually. And um, guys will have some containerized something. And you'll just deploy your dock things with that. So like the, and the main reason is for the cloud providers, they get, they can run more Docker containers on hardware than they can run virtual servers for the same cost. So just, it, you know, you look, look no, at definitely. the money. Let's always look at the money and, and you can get more things done for, for less money. Um, and that's where we will migrate to eventually. And also what's really nice with Docker is to, to migrate that from one cloud provider to another. So that's the one thing I think they're going to dislike about Docker is, you know, I can have a Docker image and move it from Google to AWS to Azure easily, very, very easily. So that's a advantage for us. Um, so that's the one reason why this might not happen is, is the guys might not like the fact that you can move, you know, like now if you've got a virtual server, let's quickly move it to Google. Uh, you know, it's not going to happen. But with a Docker image, you just set up a new Docker image out there and it's done. Um, the other places where Docker needs a lot of work is the front-end tooling. And I know Kubernetes has done quite a bit with this, um, but I still think it needs quite a bit more. Um, and it's just to make it simpler, you know, like spinning up servers like you do on AWS or any of these guys now. Now, spinning up Docker containers that way for non-technical people is, is where I think a lot more work needs to be done. The one I always think about is Rancho S or uh, they've got their own catalog. It almost got the right concept, but they still make it too hard. Like you need to know what networking is and you need to know so many technical things that most developers actually just don't want to know about. 
Like, you know, why do you need to know how to wire this cluster together? You shouldn't have to. You should be able to just spin it up and the underlying system is handle the fault tolerance for you and handle the failover for you. So if you look at the swarm stuff, I think that's what they're trying to do. And that swarm stuff has actually motivated Kubernetes to now make it easier to install. So, you know, I think that's sort of where we're going. Oh, that's interesting. It's not the first time I've heard of this Rancho OS, but I've never actually checked it out. I understand it's similar to CoreOS in that everything is containerized, but even oh, yeah. more the, so the concept than is quite CoreOS. I, I unfortunately can't recommend it because every time I use it, it actually doesn't make my life. It, it feels like it's going to make your life easier. And then you try and do something slightly complicated, and then it actually makes your life worse. Um, so that's said, so they missed the boat slightly. That they trying to give people too much choice. Like a lot of times, reduce choice, but make it easy. And, and that's actually what most people want from us. You know, if they want lots of choice, they'll spin up their own system. Um, and that, that's where sort of Roncher I think failed is they try and let you tweak everything. But now you suddenly bombarded with twenty million options to start your GlassDFS server. And, you know, what do you need to do? To, what do these options mean? Um, but the concept online of how the actual OS works is pretty much a boot like a native kernel and just enough to run Docker. Then your whole OS is inside Docker containers. So when you do an upgrade, they basically just switch Docker containers out. And if that fails, they then bring the old one back. So it allows very simple OS upgrades and downgrades, which is pretty cool. Oh, okay. Oh, no, it sounds... Sounds interesting, but uh, maybe yeah. more for just well, playing around <laughs> and feeling the I think a model most people haven't actually realized you can do with Docker. So let's say you've got a new version of your app. You know, we're so used to, oh, you upgrade the whole app. So if you speak to Google, you know, they've got thousands of servers and they do these rolling upgrades. But you as on your single servers, you can actually start up two versions of your app that are both live, start moving some users to the new version. If that fails, move them back without shutting apps up and down. No, that's great. I think uh, and Kevin might correct me, but I think that's possible with Kubernetes. No, it could, could be. So, uh, out I the box. Played, I'm, I'm far more used to playing with the latest stuff. Um, and I, I know with Swarm, which they don't know how much stuff you can do with Swarm, but I'm, I'm pretty sure you, you must be careful to like a rolling update with Kubernetes. Kubernetes has done quite a lot of stuff on rolling updates in the last while that I haven't really kept up with. Uh, but yeah, there's a, I know there's a lot of new shiny there. Yeah. <laughs> So it's a rolling target. So it's probably it's on my list to learn. Um, just as it sounds funny, like I, I know Docker so well now that I, I don't use it how most other people. I just script all my stuff myself. Though if I had to start from scratch again, I would actually start with Kubernetes because I think a lot of the patterns there are good patterns. Yeah. So if somebody listened to us tonight and and and. If now feels a bit encouraged that Docker might actually be worth their while. You know, maybe they, they burned themselves some time ago or they just simply haven't made the effort yet because they've got so much else in their plate. How would you um, recommend okay. they yeah, do it started? So I would start with just spinning up a normal single Docker server. Stay away from databases. Um, start building your own images because as soon as you work out what's actually going on, Docker looks far more complicated than it is. It's actually quite simple. But you've got to spend enough time with it to actually see how the pieces fit together. And then you realize it follows the same patterns as you're used to if you're working on a server or something like that. If you're not used to working on a server, it's going to be a bit harder um, because you now suddenly have to learn about how to do app get installs and all the rest of it. Um, but I would start there, start a simple container, start spinning up, get your app inside it and start playing and seeing how that works. Um, I, I've been thinking about this quite a bit, how, how to get people into this is 
The biggest mistake I see most people make is they try and understand layers. I always, I've learned just when you're starting, ignore layers. It's awesome, but it confuses, it confuses people way too much. And it's actually not what you need to, it has no importance when you're starting to learn. It's only later on when you're doing uh, distributing apps and all the rest of it that actually comes into play. So basically just start with Docker Container, pick the OS you know best, whether that's Red Hat or CentOS or Ubuntu, work with those. Later on, once you're a bit more comfortable, then start looking at the Alpines and the, the fancy stuff other people are doing. But basically try and make it as easy and as little to learn as you can. Uh, but that's all technologies are like that. And is there a community that people can uh, get involved yes, in that's like friendly to beginners? Sort of the community. So there's a Slack group you can join. So there's a general one as well. Um, so I know that as being Docker captains, we every now and again go in there. And the guys are very, very friendly. Um, I must say, even if you have a problem with a bug fix that you need to post or, or query on, on the, the Docker repository, and I've actually uh, put one or two bugs in there. The, the community itself is actually incredibly friendly. There's also a new thing they've started now, which is Docker mentoring. So if you want to get a mentor to help you, and I think that's actually maybe a better way to start learning. Um, you know, have a guy show you and talk you through it. So when you get stuck, um, that you, you, you've got something just to help you through the rough edges, you can join that and then you'll get one of the more senior guys in the world who's wanting to mentor to help you. Uh, yeah. Uh, it is no, no, there. That sounds like a great program. As, but unfortunately, uh, too little time at the moment. And I can imagine. But um, we, did, we never actually mentioned, uh, what does a doctor uh, captain actually it's do? Sort of a, uh, it's to help. So basically what they're doing is they found out that you, so I, I ended up in the edge, I think, because I was talking about Docker. I, I just love Docker because it, it solves so many problems for me and I can see it will solve so many problems for other people once they work how it works. So I was talking and doing that. So they basically started this, group of people where you know we get access to early releases and we get access to some of the engineers at Docker so that we can help disseminate the knowledge and you know that's not just that you've got to go ask Docker what's happening, that there's some guys with some expertise and knowledge that can help people just work out what's happening. So um, I know like we got the alpha releases of Swarm, tested all that and, and went through a lot of the pain so that by the time they release it to the general populace, that, that actually, like, that made so many changes that were so good uh, in the end product. Like, you get, it saved so many people so, so many weird things. Um, and that's sort of what the Docker cat is. It's sort of a, an outreach plus a more senior group of people who can be friendly and test the friendly side of it. And then when it does get released, that there's more people with knowledge to help disseminate best practices and, and working with the stuff a lot quicker. That sounds great. My biggest worry is like it's all these things is uh, it's you know it's quite quite a privilege of sort of fun, but you don't always have as much time as you want to spend on it. Yeah, no, definitely, <laughs> definitely. But um, speaking of that, thanks for for making the time uh, for us. I don't know if there's anything else we need to cover. I know we kind of we did deep dive a bit around the the storage and the persistence thing. I think that's an important gotcha for people at, at least it was for me you know like as you observed over and over people try and do that and i especially like the advice of ignoring the layers until it actually matters um yeah then we just had a, a nice like about the different uh, supporting tech and that, that things are healthy and then moving forward so i guess now just as like before maybe more than ever it's worth people's time to actually yeah. put effort into to, my advice to have a look and see if it's a team it's worthwhile but also don't try to get your whole team to learn it 
you normally have one or two technical people. I always find get those guys, give them the couple of days to go and work out and solve how it works and to go through the, the wrong paths a couple of times. Because, you know, whenever you're learning a new technology, you take the wrong turns. But if you have everyone doing it in your team, um, you actually effectively waste a lot of time. So if you get one guy and then have them disseminate that knowledge down. So we're talking about uh, basically replicating uh, development environments. So at AfriHost, that's where we started. We basically replicated the development environment for all the, the developers into Docker. And all of a sudden, everybody suddenly started working on the same things. Like a whole bunch of weird errors went away. Um, and at the same time, we were busy migrating to a new version of PHP. So we got to pre-test it on everyone's PC. And then, then we, we rolled out that to the servers with Docker. Um, so like I know on AfriHost, pretty much most of the technology is, is running on Docker now. Oh, yeah, it's always nice to actually have a name of somebody doing it in production. I mean, Kevin's posted several times that they do it as well, and I know he loves it. <laughs> I, I know for the fact like, the SSL loaders and the load balancers are all running inside Docker on AfriHost. Um, and I know they've been doing a bit more work since I've left on the, the PHP side, and that's sort of the underlying thing. Um, the yeah, there's so much running there actually now on Docker, but it's pretty cool. It it solves problems, and like the the, the savings and advantages you get are multiplied in larger teams. No, it makes perfect sense to me. Um, thanks, Kevin. I don't know. Do you have a little bit of wisdom for somebody who's walking into this new world of containers from your experience? Uh, a little bit. Um. I would just say, if you want to get into that too, the, the place that really helped me was looking at it in the context of something like Kubernetes, and I'm sure Docker Swarm is the same, um, because you immediately start seeing some of the, the good patterns. You don't kind of start learning the wrong way or experimenting with it the wrong way before going down the right path. Um, and there are some really good tutorials, especially, again, in the Kubernetes space, because it relies so heavily on Docker. Uh, you you can build up a small Node.js or uh, even just using the Hello World pods and then get an idea of how um, how to scale things up and down. Uh, I, I kind of see what the point of having these containers, at least in the server deployment uh, space, would be. So yeah, that, that's where I would start. Look at it in terms of Kubernetes and perhaps even go look at some of their tutorials as kind of an introduction to Docker and because that gets rid of so many of the um, the barriers that you have to try and figure I, I, out yourself. I would add to that, oh, sorry. I would add to that. Um, if you're going to start playing with Kubernetes, just spin it up on Google Cloud. Let them do the infrastructure for you. Don't don't start trying yes. to spin that up. Once again, you're adding way too much complexity to your life. When You you know, it's, it's, it's not that hard, but it's, Trying to learn that and learn Docker and learn all these things is, is going to be too much. Yeah, and you get a three hundred dollar trial, sixty days on Google. Just fire that up and yeah. let them let them deal with that. Uh, the other thing I was going to add, I just thought, if you ever like wanting to start build your own Docker files, like one of the best things to do is just go to hub.docker.com, um, pick the you know a server. Let's say you want to learn how Plex works, or I'm trying to think what's a good one, uh, WordPress. You know, go find the most popular WordPress there, and most of them actually just have links to the GitHub ones. Go see how they built their Docker files. Um, go see how they've done it, and you'll actually see a lot of it's not that complicated, and it gives you a good place to start from. 
Yeah, I learned a lot of Docker by doing exactly yeah. what you just said there. Just going and reading Docker files one after the other. And then you start seeing patterns, like all the official uh, containers uh, followed this weird um, and wonderful pattern of using the entry points and the different scripts and whatnot. And when you look at enough of them, you start realizing, hey, this is useful. This is how this stuff hangs together. So Yeah, and another good pattern one. I picked up from looking at the Docker files on Docker Hub is how... Um, they they try and cache the, the static layers of the um, the container before you start bringing your own code into it. So, for example, Ruby, uh, you should move your gem file on your gem file dot lockin, run the bundle, and bef and so that caches that layer in Docker, so it doesn't have to run that every single time you you're building a container. And you pick up tricks like that by reading through what yeah, other people have done. is trying to build as much in one single layer and cleaning out any artifacts like the dev files, RPM files to do to keep it smaller. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the one thing I was also going to add, the one thing when guys are starting is to try use the, the no cache flag when you're building your images. And the main reason is I've, I've, I've hit a couple of people where they think they're running the latest versions of stuff and, and their stuff hasn't been actually rebuilt for six months. Um, and it's just more security and stuff like that. Just while you're learning, don't worry about the caching or the layers. It, it does speed you up. Um, but it, it, until you know the right ways to do it, rather, rather just use no cache because then you're not going to get yourself into trouble. Uh, but also as you get better, learn, spin up your proxy server, spin up. Uh, you can do a registry caching server locally as well now very easily. There's documentation on, on Docker. And those things just speed up your deployments quite a bit. And if you are doing this on a web somewhere, just fire up a VM somewhere and run Docker there so you've got some decent upload yeah, speed. That, that does make a difference. Well, as I said, locally, I run a local caching registry. So eventually, after a while, actually, it's, it's pretty damn fast to play with it. Yeah, but uh, pushing up a 150 megs, 200 megs of dependencies and things, if, uh, even on your first run, uh, that's a barrier. Just don't if it's just fire up a separate VM on whatever cloud provider you're using and I do live builds that are pushed on a remote server, so I'm thinking more for local testing. Cool. I think uh, we're definitely over time. So I think we should uh, uh, yeah, push I'm into sure picks. I forgot to do picks. Um, if that's okay with you guys. So I'll, so I'll go first. Uh, the first one is uh, a local service called Terrific. Uh, we know the guys. I see them offered at Code and Coffee. Uh, always heard about this thing. Never tried it until last night, and uh, almost had a heart attack when I saw how much money I can save on my phone bill. So it's actually scary. Uh, if you don't have it switched on itemized billing, wait two or three months and go upload everything to Terrific and uh, get a shocker um, for what you can save. Uh, second one is um, uh, kind of a, a meetup and organizers and a, and a local group called Pink IT. They're trying to like really help women in tech. Um, a few weekends ago at Jersey Hub, they had like a nice workshop around robotics um, and some introduction to tech and programming that will, they've had a few other ones and I'm sure they've got much more in the pipe. So if you care at all about promoting women in tech and inclusion and diversity, definitely lend them your support, even if it is just following them on Twitter or checking out their website for events and then telling any female devs that you know about them so that they at least can get into a supportive community and we can all do our bit to help restore the balance in our industry. 
Uh, so that's it for me. Game uh, from your side? One pick from me this week is Datadog. Uh, for real-time, well, time series database. Uh, if, you, if you want to keep track of stats of your application, things like um, performance metrics, uh, counters, and things like that. Datadog is a really good place to uh, to store things using StatsD, and that they graph things out really nicely. It's all a hosted service, um, and the nice thing is relatively good pricing, and you get 13 months of persistence of data in, in their service, which is quite a lot longer than New Relic at a fraction of the cost, although it's not doing quite the same thing, um, but, but very useful service, and yeah, check out Datadog. Yeah, uh, cool. I should remember what I was going to pick. Cool. Um, it's it's Tim? something I think most guys have come across. It's been around for a while, but me and my wife has recently discovered John Oliver. Um, and if you sort of enjoy comedic politics, I uh, can highly recommend it with the slightly dry British humor. Um, basically, he talks about you know real subjects and stuff, but it's he he's one of the ex people from the Daily Show uh, who basically uh, started working under John Stewart. So if you enjoy that, go check out uh, John Oliver. He's, he's really good. Um, and the other thing I'd just recommend people to look out is the Docker Swarm stuff. The main reason why I'm liking playing with it so much at the moment is it's just it's so horribly easy to set up. Um, I believe the Kubernetes are starting to take some stuff from it, uh, which to me is only a good thing. You know, anything that helps people get <laughs> you know out the, out the blocks quicker is, is a good win. Um, yeah, Tim, thanks, thanks a lot again uh, for your time. Um, if somebody wants to get in touch uh, with you, on Twitter, uh, what's Tim the best way to ping you on Twitter? T-I-M underscore H-A-A-K. I'm sure the best way of getting a hold of me is actually just emailing me at Tim, T-I-M at Hawk, H-A-A-K dot co. Yes, just dot co. Um, I'm normally more prevalent on there nowadays than on Twitter or any of the other places. Okay, cool. No, thanks for that. Just if somebody has got some like real work oh, cool. that involves getting teams up on Docker and stuff, so you can help. And anything else you do, I mean, you've <laughs> people have now had a chance to to hear what what what's within your skill set. So, but yeah, thanks again for for making the time. I mean, this is a blazing hot Monday evening. I'm oh, sure everybody uh, is going to put their fans back on. Um, also, if anybody has any just questions about Docker, feel free to email me. I won't be able. To always answer everything, but, you know, I, I really, really like this thing, so if I can help other people sort of get started with it, I'm more than happy to. Awesome. Cool. Thank Cheers. you so much. And uh, I guess with that, we can say goodnight. Goodbye, goodbye. Cheers, everyone. Show notes for this episode can be found on zadevchat.io. As always, ratings and reviews on iTunes are much appreciated. If you have feedback on this episode or any other episode, you can tweet us at zadevchat or leave a comment on the website. Thanks for listening to the ZA Dev Chat podcast, and we'll see you next time.